Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from Truva and Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of Ephesians, and during this sermon, we look at gifts given through Christ, including grace through His sacrifice, and gifts given to His people for work in the ministry. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, as Pastor Ben Hartwig delivers his sermon titled, Gifts of the Savior. you, and I hope that you do, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, we went, uh, we had Ephesians uh, 4, 1 through 6, well, last time we were together in Ephesians, and uh, we are going to look at verses 7 through 11. may seem a bit unnatural in what the way that I took this here, but uh, just with the way that we've carried this through and the way that the things that we're focusing on, uh, this is the portion that we're going to look at. So let's begin at verse 1 um, and just start there just to kind of make sure we're, we're where we need to be in light of the entirety of the passage. So we'll begin uh, there in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, and uh, our focus is verse 7 through 11. So Paul writes there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your help. We ask for your help as we look into your word. Father, I ask personally for your help as I uh, make the attempt to convey this in a way that would be understandable and useful. Father, guard my lips that I wouldn't say anything stupid or unuseful, but Father, that uh, it would be that that would be helpful. For, uh, for us, for edification, and Father, ultimately for your purpose, and uh, your purpose in our lives as individuals, and um, uh, for the gifts that you have given us, for the gifts that you have given the church, and um, Father, that we would see this, that we would make use of this, Father, ultimately for your glory. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, for a uh, quick recap of where we uh, where we were when we were together last time in the first six verses of chapter four, we were in this matter of unity in the body and uh, of our own personal walk in the midst of that. So we tackled this idea of our walk in the midst of the unity in the body, our walk among and with our brothers and sisters in the body. All of this uh, being supported in who we are in Christ. That uh, those two words in Christ that is a major 
major theme in Ephesians, so it was in light of that. Also undergirded by the fact that there is a very strong Trinitarian statement in this passage that is supporting all of this. So that was our walk, the in Christ theme that goes throughout the letter with that Trinitarian statement that, uh, that uh, just, just declaring the divinity, Paul declaring the divinity of, of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul goes on to develop this now in these uh, verses here in 7 through 11, um, and, he, and he does this concerning what is to be now happening in the church. So it's important, faith family, that you recognize that we all recognize that we have a gifting, a gifting that has been given to us through the grace of God. Yes, there is the gift to the church of the pastors. At first it was the apostles, it was the prophets early on. Now it's the, it's the pastors, the teachers, elders in the church. Um, this is the gift to the church, but we have been given gifts. And these things just don't arrive by just some whim of God that God just blindly throws darts at dartboards to see who gets what. It's, it's like whenever the children show up for uh, the young children uh, on, on young uh, youth league football teams, they show up and every one of them wants to be the quarterback. Um, we can't allow that, obviously. That would be a mistake. That would be disastrous. Um, Personally, I had a kid, every time he'd hit the huddle, he would say, can I run the ball now? No, you can't run the ball now. Why? Because it would be disastrous. God does this with purpose whenever he hands out his giftings. He does it with purpose. And this is far more important than any such game, child's game. This is the church. And this required the death of Christ. Outside of the death of Christ, none of this would happen. Now, don't misunderstand me to say that Christ died so that you'd be a good Sunday school teacher, or that Christ died so that you'd have a heart for the poor, or that Christ died so you'd be great with our children, or that Christ died so you'd be merciful or good at hospitality. That's not why Christ died, but none of those things can happen in the church if Christ didn't die. It's fundamental that Christ died and all that this would happen. All those things are good. All those things are right. That mercy, that hospitality, uh, teachers, people that work with our children, all those things are necessary within the church. But Christ descended. Christ came to earth to die so that you would be redeemed and ultimately that God would be glorified. And so with that said, we have to see that this is big as it concerns the church and now glorifying God with the gifts that the Savior has given each and every one of us. So we're looking, as we look at Ephesians, we are looking for that quote-unquote mature manhood. We're looking for that measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We desperately should be wanting to attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. Nothing, nothing, none of that happens if Christ does not have the entirety of the wrath of God poured upon Him at the cross, and then He rises from the dead. Bearing that wrath that you and I deserved. But what we recognize is that there's an issue. We know that there's an issue in our culture because much of what is considered Christianity, much of what is considered gospel in our culture isn't Christianity, and it isn't gospel. What it looks like is something more along the lines of what can I do for God to win him over instead of what God has actually done in the gospel, placing ourselves above God. 
the gospel of the lost man's mind says, you know, I'm so wonderful at this thing. I'm so wonderful with what I have, the talent that I have. I'm going to grace God with this ability. I'm going to grace God with this ability, and then he'll find favor on me because I have done this thing. Well, the question is, how does that reflect the work that Christ has done on the cross? It doesn't. Christ is the one who descended. He went to the cross. He died. And the entire time that he did what he did, he was holy and is only holy, and we are not. You see, we're hopeless if he has not done this. We are hopeless if this has not happened. So we read this passage and cannot forget as we read it that God would be perfectly just in sending me to hell now. But instead, what Christ did is he bore the wrath and God's just justice fell on Christ. The New Testament, the Old Testament contains commands, requirements, standards, obligations to be fulfilled. But as important as all that is, commands and requirements are not the heart of the gospel and not the heart of Christianity. Those things are just what God calls and enables us to do for His glory in response to what He has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every New Testament book, as you read it, will teach what Christ has done for believers. And every New Testament exhortation is built on the foundation of God's gracious provision through our Savior. God gave the supreme gift of His grace. His children, that's us, to respond with faithful obedience. So Paul begins the text that we have here by referring to what God has done for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The worthy Christian walk that we had last time, a couple months ago, in those first six verses. The worthy Christian walk that we just had that last time there in those first six verses, um, this is now carried out in these verses, 7 through 11 here. It's carried out through the ministry of the gifts that have been given us and the ministry of the gifts that have been given to the church, those gifts being people. So in these verses, he assures us that every believer has been individually gifted. This isn't just the pastor here. This isn't just uh, uh, the leaders in the church. This isn't just our music people that have been gifted. This is every person has been gifted in some way. And he shows us how Christ obtained the right to give those gifts. And finally, he mentions some of the specifically gifted men through whom the Lord blesses the entire church then. So the gifts to the individuals there in verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, as we mentioned, Paul is moving here from the unity of the believers in the body to uh, something more of a laser focus in the uniqueness of believers. He says, Grace. Grace might be a one-word definition of the gospel if we had to give one word, but grace... Uh, is a good one-word definition there. The gospel is the good news of God's grace to sinful mankind. The nature of grace is what? It's giving. And that's what we see here. Verse 7, this matter of giving, grace was given. And so the gospel, good news, grace, sinful mankind, the nature of that grace is giving. The Bible tells us much more, obviously, about giving than it does getting. Because why? Because God doesn't have to get anything from us. He only 
gives. God is the God of grace because he is the God who freely gives. It has absolutely zero to do with anything that I have done or anything that I failed to do. Why? Because grace by definition is only to be received. So we rightly understand that God is gracious because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we are or what we're doing. Grace is not earned. It can't be earned. By definition, it can't be earned. It has to be given. His grace, therefore, it's unmerited. It's unearned. It's undeserved by its nature. It depends entirely on the one who is giving it, not on those who receive it. Grace, God's self-motivated, not motivated by me, but self-motivated sovereign act of giving. So the greatest dimension of this grace is the self. God's grace is seen as his self-giving. He gives of himself. It's what we see in the passage. Grace given each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Giving of himself. He just doesn't give blessings to men. That would be nice, but it isn't what we need, right? He gives himself. He gives of himself. The holy God, perfect holy God, has given himself to sinful mankind, the thing of which we really, truly need. And so because of grace, God grants us his salvation, his kingdom, his inheritance, his spirit, his throne, his wisdom, everything. Now, of course, not all those things in full measure because he is God and we are not. We don't have God's wisdom, but he does grant us wisdom. But still, he is God. We are not. Above all, he gives us his personal presence. God owes nothing to me as a sinful man. The only thing he owes me is judgment for sin. I'm not owed the smallest blessing. I'm not owed the smallest favor, but he gives us the blessing. He gives us the favor. He gives us the blessing of blessings, and that is life shared with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So when you choose a man or a woman to spend the rest of your life with in marriage, you're very careful, right? Because you want to pick someone that you feel like is worthy of the self-giving that marriage demands. If I'm not self-giving in marriage, it's not a marriage that's going to go very well. This is the one person that above all the others, I'm going to give my love, my time, my devotion, everything that I have. If we recall back to chapter one in Ephesians, which was some time ago whenever we were there. But if we recall back to that, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He did this out of grace, not anything that he saw in us that made us worthy of his care. You should see the difference there, right? The only thing, specifically the only person that can span that gap is Christ. We see that the son emptied himself of his own glory that he would offer glory to fallen men, giving his life that spiritually dead men would live. Not just live, but then given gifts, as we're told here, given gifts to serve and glorify God. That is grace. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus continually gave himself to others. He gave himself to his disciples. He gave himself to those that he healed. He gave himself to those that he raised. And of course, most of all, he gave himself to those that he forgave. The gift, which is an outflowing of his grace, then is unique to each believer. 
The measure that is given is done so, it's done so out of sovereign design from the head of the church. His grace, faith energizes whatever gift he gives, and it's the intent of his purpose. So such gifts as prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, mercy, all these things we are gifted according to what? To his plan, his purpose, his measure. Again, we go back to our failing illustration of the children in, in football whenever they come up and, and, they, and they have a position. You know, you've got to, as the one who is leading that team, to say, you are going to play quarterback. You are going to be a linebacker. You are going to do this. Why? Because it is for the purpose of the team, the, what the team is going to do. The team wants to win. Well, on a much higher and more important, obviously, scale than a child's game is the purpose this is about his plan, his purpose, his measure, what he's doing in redemption. We have no more than to do with what our personal gift is than we did with determining our, our, our skin color, our hair color, our eye color, or whether we have hair or not. I would certainly have more if I had to choose, right? God is the source of electing grace. He is the source of equipping grace. He is the source of enabling grace when it comes to how that gift is played out we need to know that a hundred different believers with a teaching gift don't have that gift in the same manner or the same degree necessarily one may excel in public teaching another may excel in instructing children and working with children you know just a great example of what's going on here with the with the teaching of our children um it's almost like it's just we couldn't have better people doing this job when we see what our children are learning and we see these tiny little people spouting theology coming out of their mouths that we don't hear out of people five times their age. But there's certain people that teach children. There's certain people that act as mentors in one-on-one -on -one discipleship and then group discipleship. Each is given the measure of grace and faith to operate according to what? According to God's plan and exactly what God is doing given each different environment and background it's obvious that each believer then is unique god doesn't give a gift that we don't have use for it's not like whenever you go to you swing by the 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 aunt's house on christmas and and before you get out of the car and you go into the house and your mom says now remember you might get a gift here that you don't really like or you don't really have any use for you're wondering why she's even giving it to you but you're going to be thankful for it and you're going to like it and then whenever we get home we'll figure out what we're going to do with it right and and maybe we'll just shove it under the bed and never look at it again god doesn't give gifts like that that's not the way that these work. God never gives a gift that we don't have a use for. And to use our gifts as a disdain for his love, to not use them. If, I've, if I'm given a gift, if you're given a gift and not use it, it's a disdain for his love. It's a disdain for his grace. It's a loss to the church and it's a loss to the kingdom because God's given it. Not because I'm not using it because I'm so great. It's because God's given it to me. He saved me. He's redeemed me, given me a gift to do something with, and then I am not using it. Christ gives the gifts that he has won, and he has the right to uh, give those gifts. 
verse 8 through 10, concerning this right to, to give these gifts. Therefore, it says, verse 8, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So before mentioning the gifts to the church, and, and before we get into the gifts in the form of people to the church, in verse 11, uh, Paul uses Psalm 68, 18 as a comparison passage to show how Christ received the right to bestow these gifts. Paul here stating the divinity of Christ. And this is important as Paul the Apostle just makes this very bold statement of the divinity of Christ, who Christ is. Christ is indeed God. And so to say when he ascended on high is to depict this triumphant Jesus Christ returning from battle on earth back into the glory of the heavenly city with the trophies of his great victory, so to speak. So in the resurrection, God conquered Satan, sin, death, all of that conquered, and by that victory, what did he do? He led a host, uh, he led captive a host of captives who were prisoners of the enemy, but are now returned, returned to the God and the people with whom they belong. This picture that's being painted here is vivid. It's a vivid picture, and it's a demonstration that God has yet unsaved people who will belong to Him. They're naturally in the grasp of Satan. And they would remain there had not Christ, by His death and resurrection, made provision to lead them into the captivity of His kingdom, into which they have been called by sovereign election before the foundation of the world, as it states. So in light of that, we should go down the road of what Christ has done in giving us these gifts and gifting us in the fullness of Himself. There is fullness of essential deity. Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us that in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a fullness of perfect manhood. For in Him bodily, the, that Godhead was revealed. It was all revealed to us in Christ. There's a fullness of effectual atonement in His blood, blood that cleanses you from all sin. A fullness of justifying righteousness in his life. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A fullness of victory in the cross of Christ in that he removed the sting of death. That divinity that Paul declares takes us to this. The fullness of triumph in his ascension. For when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So there's a fullness of blessings of every sort, every shape, a fullness of grace to pardon, of grace to regenerate, of grace to sanctify, preserve, and perfect in the end. There's a fullness at all times, whether it be affliction or prosperity. Christ is the stream. Christ is the well. We're told that well does not run dry. It is where you get all your needs supply for the gifting that He has given you. Jesus then went as He returned to heaven. Arriving there, He gave gifts to men. But we're told first He went down. He descended. The depth of Christ's descent in incarnation is said to be into the lower parts of the earth. Now there's a lot to this. We won't get into all of that, but the reference is presented to provide a striking con uh, contrast here in terms of His ascent 
far above the heavens, emphasizing the extreme range of our Lord's condescension and His exaltation. Lower parts doesn't necessarily uh, point so much to a physical place as it does just simply the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming to earth. The descent went lower than the womb, lower, lower than the earth, lower than the grave and death. There was a descent to the very pit of demons, we know. When he was three days in the grave, he descended and made proclamation like Josh had already said before. I want to know more about that too. I want to understand more about what happened there. But we're given what we're given, and that's all we know for now. But what was it? It was a triumphant announcement of defeat, victory over demons, sin, death, hell, and Satan, even though they tried to hold him in death. He won, and thus he has won the right to bestow the gifts upon us. It shows us that we are told in Proverbs uh, 15.33 that humility comes before honor. If there's going to be any honor, there has to be humility. Again, Christ doesn't just say to do something. He does it. Humility is glorifying. Pride, on the other hand, will absolutely destroy you. Humiliation of soul brings a blessing with it. When we empty our hearts of self using the gifts that Christ has given, God then fills with love. If we desire close communion with Christ, we should remember the word of the Lord in verse us uh, are in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He must be humbled. I have to be brought low if we'll ever see God. It is said of the God man Christ, how much more does it mean for us who are not holy? If it means that Christ was descended, that Christ was descended before He ascended, that He was brought down before He rose from the dead, before He brought that glory to God. What's that mean for us? Jesus was holy. We are not. It is said here in verse 10 of Christ that He who descended is the one who also ascended. So must you. You must go downward in humility that you may grow upward. Fellowship with heaven is only enjoyed by humble souls. God tells us that He will not deny the humble. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These giftings that you have will make you able to grow if you're humble enough to receive them without growing proud. If there's something that you don't receive, if there's something that you don't receive, it's because it isn't currently safe for you to have it. If our Father in heaven were to let the proud and prideful soul win a victory in this holy war that we find ourselves in, then you would grab that crown for yourself, you would expand your pride, and in the next battle you would fall a victim. Humility is for your safety. Humility is for your safety. Again, you look to the cross and that's what you're going to see. Humility for your safety. There is never too much genuine humility. The point here to explain that Jesus is paying the infinite price of coming to earth and suffering death on our behalf qualified Him to do what? To be exalted. To be exalted above all the heavens to the throne of God in order that He might rightfully have the authority to give gifts to His saints. 
By that victory, he gained the right to rule his church and to give gifts to his church. This is that he might fill all things. This means all things. This primarily means his glorious divine presence, power expressed in his universal sovereignty. He fills the entire universe with blessing, particularly his church, which we see in verse 11. These gifts to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are divinely called and divinely placed. If we look at them in order here real quickly, um, the apostles, what they do? They laid the foundation of the church. They received and declared the revelation of God's word, gave confirmation of that word through signs and wonders and miracles. The office of prophet then disappeared about 400 years before Christ. The office of apostle ceased with the completion of the New Testament. With that then, the church was established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with, of course, Christ as the cornerstone. Then the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers picked up the baton then from the first generation, apostles and prophets. They are now in place in God's plan for the advancement of the kingdom. Evangelists, like somebody said as a joke, and we're all TV preachers now, but uh, the TV evangelists, if you will, but the evangelists, the evangelists specifically, what he's speaking to is in the church, not some kind of TV evangelist, but evangelists within the church, they proclaim the good news, preaching the word, preach and explain the good news of salvation in Christ to those who have not believed. In our culture, especially in our Baptist culture, uh, in years past, this had turned into a spring and fall tradition where there's a spring revival and a fall revival in the form of uh, a schedule revival. That's the way the Baptists used to do it. That's not the biblical idea. It was an idea, though, that the local body would, um, uh, you know, we would, we would call in a guy from 50 miles away or even better, 100 miles away to come and preach for a week, and that would cause a revival. That's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is that this would be within the body. This is a gift to the body, that the evangelist is in the body. Not just one, but many. Some may be sent out by the church. Some may remain in fellowship to lead others, to lead the lost to Christ. As for the pastors and the teachers, we should see that the primary function, of course, of the pastor is to be a teacher, right? Even though... A teaching ministry is one all to its own. The role of the pastor teacher carries its own responsibility. You have elders in the church, synonymous term with pastors, charged with the care, the feeding, the spiritual feeding, the guidance of the church. And so there's a general responsibility. Specific duties also. Most obvious, overseeing all the affairs of the local church. These pastoral elders are they're not subject to any higher earthly authority outside of the assembly. There's no individual board. There's no body outside of the assembly that can direct that pastor, those elders. The authority that he does have within the body is not by force. It's not by some dictatorial power within the church, but it's by precept and example. These guys are not given to the church to come into a church and just drop the hammer on the church. They don't operate by some majority rule or vote. If the elders are guided by the same spirit, if they have the mind of Christ, um, there's unity in the decisions they make. That doesn't mean they always agree, but whenever they come out of what they've come out of, they do agree. They do settle. They do come together. 
Um, that's part of what makes them a gift to the body. I remember years ago, um, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, was questioned, um, asked if uh, the elders in his church, and there's many in, in that church, probably 20, 30, 40, I don't know, maybe more, but many elders in that church, if they ever didn't come together in unity. And he replied that while there would be disagreements, they would always come out in agreement. And uh, if there was ever a disagreement with what the elders in the congregation, them coming together, he said he can't remember it not happening, that, that ever happening, that there was a disagreement that ended in disunity. Um, we should know that if there is there ever division, since God has given this as a gift in people, God has given us gifts. If we ever find ourselves in disagreement, if we ever find ourselves in disunity, what we do is we pray, we seek, and we do we seek God together, and unity will be reached and established. In light of the church and the gifts of us, the people, the gifts granted to us by Christ that make up the church, we must not forget that all the gifts that Christ gives to individuals and to the church as a whole are gifts that he himself, that Christ himself, had personally and perfectly exemplified. Whatever gift you have, if you want to know how to better use that gift, look towards Christ. Deny yourself and look towards Christ. If there was ever a preacher, it was Jesus. If there was ever a teacher, it was Jesus. If there were ever one that could rule, it was Jesus. If there was ever a leader, a servant, a helper, it was Christ. He's the perfect illustration of every gift and these gifts are gifts of himself to us but you have to repent you have to know him as lord and savior turn from sin fall upon the grace mercy of christ receiving that great gift that he has for you you'll live in the joy then the joy of bringing glory to god in the unity of the church with your brothers and sisters in christ and that's what we do as we look forward to bringing ourselves back together because these pictures that have been scattered all over the church are nice, but it's not the same. And so as we look forward to gathering back together, we look forward to bringing our gifts back together in service to Him, in service to the church, and ultimately to Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You and we praise you for Jesus. We thank you most of all for the salvation that has been provided through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that could be given. The great grace in the gospel, the gift of salvation. Nothing that we can do to earn it, nothing that we can do to merit this. Father, we follow you, we trust you, we obey you. In a difficult and trying time, Father, we ask for a special dose of grace father as we look forward to gathering back together being together again and father that from this time and and, and when we do gather back together that we would just have a, a refreshed charge to serve you to bring glory to you and father we thank you and we praise you for it it is in jesus name we pray 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, Gifts of the Savior. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine.com. Dash Baptist dot org.